Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> <laughs> Good evening, you're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome, dear listeners, to Season 11, Episode 20. I'm your host, Otis Jarry, and in this episode, I'll be performing four tales to terrify you, courtesy of classic author Philip K. Dick. Tonight you'll hear tales of strange acts of terror, less than willing entries... Bounties through time, and clocks that certainly are cuckoo. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first two spine-tingling stories. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail. So lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show is about to begin. <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. While many pray that the future will lead to a time of peace, hope, and prosperity for all, People will likely be people for many years to come, and that means arguments, incidents, and genuine acts of terror. But during tense times, maybe all the technology, all the security, won't stop a little ingenuity. Without further ado, I present to you the Crystal Crypt. Stark terror ruled the inner flight ship on that last Mars terror run. For the black-clad laters were on the prowl, and the grim red planet was not far behind. Attention, interflight ship, attention. 
You're ordered to land at the control station on Demos for inspection. Attention! You are to land at once. The metallic rasp of the speaker echoed through the corridors of the great ship. The passengers glanced at each other uneasily, murmuring and peering out the port windows at the small speck below, the dot of rock that was the Martian checkpoint Demos. What's up? An anxious passenger asked one of the pilots, hurrying through the ship to check the escape lock. We have to land. Keep seated, the pilot went on. Land? But why? They all looked at each other. Hovering above the bulging inner flight ship were three slender Martian pursuit craft, poised and alert for any emergency. As the inner flight ship prepared to land, the pursuit ships dropped lower, carefully maintaining themselves a short distance away. There's something going on. A woman passenger said nervously, Lord, I thought we were finally through with those Martians. Now what? I don't blame them for giving us one last going over, a heavy-set businessman said to his companion. After all, we're the last ship leaving Mars for Terra. We're damn lucky they let us go at all. You think there really will be a war? A young man said to the girl sitting in the seat next to him. Those Martians won't dare fight, not with our weapons and ability to produce. We could take care of Mars in a month. It's all talk. The girl glanced at him. Don't be sure. Mars is desperate. They'll fight tooth and nail. I've been on Mars three years, she shuddered. Thank goodness I'm getting away. If... Prepare to land, the pilot's voice came. The ship began to settle, slowly, dropping down toward the tiny emergency field on the seldom-visited moon. Down, down the ship dropped. There was a grinding sound, a sickening jolt, then silence. We've landed, the heavy-set businessman said. They better not do anything to us. Terra will rip them apart if they violate one space article. Please keep your seats, the pilot's voice came. No one is to leave the ship, according to the Martian authorities. We're to remain here. A restless stir filled the ship. Some of the passengers began to read uneasily. Others stared out at the deserted field, nervous and on edge, watching the three Martian pursuit ships land and disgorge groups of armed men. The Martian soldiers were crossing the field quickly, moving toward them, running double-time. This inner-flight spacecraft the last passenger vessel, to leave Mars for Terra. All other ships had long since left, returning to safety before the outbreak of hostilities. The passengers were the very last to go, the final group of Terrans, to leave the grim red planet, businessmen, expatriates, tourists, any and all Terrans who had not already gone home. What do you suppose they want? The young man said to the girl, it's hard to figure Martians out, isn't it? First, they give you the ship clearance, let us take off, and now they ready us to set us down again. By the way, my name's Thatcher, Bob Thatcher, since we're going to be here a while. The port lock opened. Talking ceased abruptly as everyone turned. A black-clad Martian official, a province leader, stood framed against the bleak sunlight, staring around the ship. Behind him, a handful of Martian soldiers stood waiting, their guns ready. 
This will not take long, the leader said, stepping into the ship, soldiers following him. You'll be allowed to continue your trip shortly. An audible sigh of relief went through the passengers. Look at him, the girl whispered to Thatcher. How I hate those black uniforms. He's just a provincial leader, Thatcher said. Don't worry. The leader stood for a moment, hands on his hips, looking around at them without expression. I've ordered your ship grounded so that an inspection can be made of all persons aboard, he said. You Terrans are the last to leave our planet. Most of you are ordinary and harmless. I'm not interested in you. I'm interested in finding three saboteurs, three Terrans, two men and a woman, who've committed an incredible act of destruction and violence. They're said to have fled to this ship. Murmurs of surprise and indignation broke out on all sides. The leader motioned the soldiers to follow him up the aisle. Two hours ago, a Martian city was destroyed. Nothing remains. Only a depression in the sand where the city was. The city and all its people have completely vanished. An entire city destroyed in a second. Mars will never rest until the saboteurs are captured. and We know they're aboard this ship. It's impossible, the heavyset businessman said. There aren't any saboteurs here. We'll begin with you, the leader said to him. Stepping up beside the man's seat, one of the soldiers passed the leader a square metal box. This will soon tell us if you're speaking the truth. Stand up. Get on your feet. The man rose slowly, flushing. See here. Are you involved in the destruction of the city? Answer. The man swallowed angrily. I know nothing about any destruction of any city. And furthermore... He's telling the truth, the metal box said tonelessly. Next person. The leader moved down the aisle. A thin, bald-headed man stood up nervously. No, sir, he said. I don't know a thing about it. He's telling the truth, the box affirmed. Next person, stand up. One person, after another, stood, answered, and sat down again in relief. At last, there were only a few people left who had not been questioned. The leader paused, studying them intently. Only five left. Three must be among you. We've narrowed it down. His hand moved to his belt. Something flashed, a rod of pale fire. He raised the rod, pointing it steadily at the five people. All right, the first of you. What do you know about this destruction? You're involved in the destruction of our city? No, not at all. The man murmured. Yes, he's telling the truth, the box intoned. Next. Nothing. I, I know nothing. I had nothing to do with it. True, the box said. The ship was silent. Three people remained. A middle-aged man and his wife and their son, a boy about twelve. They stood in the corner, staring white-faced at the leader the rod in his dark fingers. It must be you. The leader grated, moving toward them. The Martian soldiers raised their gun. It must be you. You there, the boy. What do you know about the destruction of our city? Answered. The boy shook his head. Nothing, he whispered. The box was silent for a moment. 
He's telling the truth, it said reluctantly. Next. Nothing, the woman muttered. Nothing. The truth. Next. Had nothing to do with blowing up your city, the man said. You're wasting your time. It is the truth, the box said. For a long time, the leader stood toying with his rod. At last, he pushed it back in his belt and signaled the soldiers toward the exit lock. You may proceed on your trip, he said. He walked after the soldiers. At the hatch, he stopped, looking back at the passengers, his face grim. You may go, but Mars will not allow her enemies to escape. Three saboteurs will be caught, I promise you. He rubbed his dark jaw thoughtfully. It's strange. He was certain they were on this ship. Again, he looked coldly around at the Terrans. Perhaps I was wrong. All right, proceed, but remember, the three will be caught, even if it takes endless years. Mars will catch them and punish them, I swear it. For a long time, no one spoke. The ship lumbered through space again, its jets firing evenly, calmly moving the passengers toward their own planet, toward home. Behind them, Deimos and the red ball that was Mars dropped farther and farther away, each moment disappearing and fading into the distance. A sigh of relief passed through the passengers. What a lot of hot air that was, one grumbled. Barbarians, a woman said. A few of them stood up, moving out into the aisle, toward the lounge and the cocktail bar. Beside Thatcher, the girl got to her feet, pulling her jacket around her shoulders. Pardon me, she said, stepping past him. Going to the bar? Thatcher said. Mind if I come along? I suppose not. They followed the others into the lounge, walking together up the aisle. You know, Thatcher said, I don't even know your name yet. My name is Mara Gordon. Mara? That's a nice name. What part of Terra are you from? North America? New York? I've been in New York, Mara said. New York is very lovely. She was slender and pretty, with a cloud of dark hair tumbling down her neck against her leather jacket. They entered the lounge and stood undecided. Let's sit at a table, Mara said, looking around at the people at the bar, mostly men. Perhaps that table over there. But somebody's already there, Thatcher said. The heavy-set businessman had sat down at the table and deposited his sample case on the floor. Do we want to sit with him? Oh, it's all right, Mara said, crossing to the table. May we sit here? she said to the man. The man looked up, half-rising. It's a pleasure, he murmured. He stuttered Thatcher intently. However, a friend of mine will be joining me in a moment. I'm sure there's room for all of us, Maris said. She seated herself, and Thatcher helped her with her chair. He sat down, too, glancing up suddenly at Mara and the businessman. They were looking at each other, almost as if something had passed between them. The man was middle-aged with a florid face and tired gray eyes. His hands were mottled with the veins showing thickly. At the moment, he was tapping nervously. My name is Thatcher, Thatcher said to him, holding out his hand. Bob Thatcher. Since we're going to be together for a while, we might as well get to know each other. 
The man studied him. Slowly, his hand came out. Why not? My name's Erickson, Ralph Erickson. Erickson, Thatcher's mouth. You look like a commercial man to me. He nodded toward the sample case on the floor. Am I right? The man named Erickson started to answer. But at that moment, there was a stir. A thin man of about thirty had come up to the table, his eyes bright, staring down at them warmly. Well, we're on our way, he said to Erickson. Hello, Mayor. He pulled out a chair and sat down quickly, folding his hands on the table before him. He noticed Thatcher and drew back a little. Oh, pardon me, he murmured. Bob Thatcher's my name, Thatcher said. I hope I'm not intruding here. He glanced around at the three of them, Mara, alert, watching him intently, heavy-set Erickson, his face blank in this person. Say, do you three know each other? He asked suddenly. There was silence. The robot attendants lived over, soundlessly, poised to take their orders. Erickson roused himself. Let's see, he murmured. What will we have, Mara? Uh, whiskey and water. You, Jan? The bright, slim man smiled. The same. And Thatcher? Gin and tonic. Whiskey and water for me also, Erickson said. The robot attendant went off. It returned at once with the drinks, setting them on the table. Each took his own. Well, Erickson said, holding his glass up. To our mutual success. All drank. Thatcher and the three of them. Have you said Erickson? Nera, her eyes nervous and alert. Jan, who'd just come. Again, a look passed between Nera and Erickson. A look so swift that he would have not caught it had he not been looking directly at her. What line do you represent, Mr. Erickson? Thatcher asked. Erickson glanced at him, then down at the sample case on the floor. He grunted, Well, as you can see, I'm a salesman. Thatcher smiled. I knew it. You get so you can always spot a salesman right off by a sample case. Salesman always has to carry something to show. What are you in, sir? Erickson paused. He licked his thick lips, his eyes blank and lidded like a toad's. At last, he rubbed his mouth with his hand and reached down, lifting up his sample case. He set it on the table in front of him. Well, he said, Perhaps we might even show Mr. Thatcher. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. They all stared down at the sample case. It seemed to be 
an ordinary leather case with a metal handle and a snap lock. Getting curious, Thatcher said. What's in there? They're all so tense. Diamonds? Stolen jewels? Jan laughed harshly, mirthlessly. Eric put it down. We're not far enough away yet. Nonsense, Eric grumbled. We're away, Jan. Please, Mary whispered. Wait, Eric. Wait? Why? What for? You're so accustomed to. Eric, Mara said. She nodded toward Thatcher. We don't know him, Eric. Please. He's a Terran, isn't he? Erickson said. All Terrans are together in these times. He fumbled suddenly at the catch lock on the case. Yes, Mr. Thatcher, I'm a salesman. We're all salesmen. The three of us. And you do know each other. Yes, Erickson said. His two companions sat rigidly, staring down. Yes, we do. Here, I'll show you our line. He opened the case. From it, he took a letter knife, pencil sharpener, glass globe paperweight, a box of thumbtacks, staplers, some clips, a plastic ashtray, some things Thatcher could not identify. He placed the objects in a row in front of him on the tabletop. Then he closed the sample case. I gather you're in office supplies, Thatcher said. He touched the letter knife with his finger. Nice quality steel. Looks like Swedish steel to me. Erickson nodded, looking into Thatcher's face. Not really an impressive business, is it? Office supplies. Ashtrays, paper clips. He smiled. Oh, Thatcher shrugged. Why not? They're a necessity in modern business. The only thing I wonder... What's that? Well, I wonder how you'd ever find enough customers on Mars to make it worth your while. He paused, examining the glass paperweight. He lifted it up, holding it to the light, staring at the scene within, until Erickson took it out of his hand and put it back in the sample case. And another thing. If you three know each other, why did you sit apart when you got they looked at him quickly. Why didn't you speak to each other until we left Demos? He leaned toward Erickson, smiling at him. Two men and a woman, three of you, sitting apart in the ship, not speaking until the check station was passed. I found myself thinking over what the Martian said. Three saboteurs, a woman and two men. Erickson put the things back in the sample. He was smiling, but his face had gone chalk white. Mara stared down, playing with a drop of water on the edge of her glass. Jan clenched his hands together nervously, blinking rapidly. You three are the ones Leader was after. Thatcher said softly, You're the destroyers, the saboteurs. But their lie detector. Why didn't it trap you? How did you get by that? Now you're safe outside the check station. He grinned, staring around at them. I'll be damned. I really thought you were a salesman, Erickson. You really fooled me. Erickson relaxed a little. Well, Thatcher, it's in a good cause. I'm sure you have no love for Mars, either. No Terran does, and I see you're living with the rest of us. True, Thatcher said. You must certainly have an interesting account of you, the three of you. He looked around the table. 
We still have an hour or so of travel. Sometimes it gets dull. This Mars terror run. Nothing to see, nothing to do but sit and drink in a lounge. He raised his glass slowly. Any chance you'd like to spin a story to keep us awake? Jan and Mara looked at Erickson. Go on, Jan said. He knows who we are. Tell him the rest of the story. Might as well, Mara said. Jan let out a sigh sudden, a sigh of relief. Let's put the cards on the table, get this weight off us. I'm tired of stinking around, slipping. Sure, Erickson said expansively. Why not? He settled back in his chair, unbuttoning his vest. Certainly, Mr. Thatcher, I'll be glad to spin you a story. And I'm sure it will be interesting enough to keep you awake. They ran through the groves of dead trees, leaping across the sun-baked Martian soil, running silently together. They went up a little rise, across a narrow ridge. Suddenly, Eric stopped, throwing himself down flat on the ground. The others did the same, pressing themselves against the soil, gasping for breath. Be silent, Eric muttered. He raised himself a little. No noise. There'll be lighters nearby now on. We don't dare take any chances. Between the three people lying in the grove of dead trees in the city was a barren, level waste of desert for a mile of blasted sand. No trees or bushes marred the smooth, parched surface. Only an occasional wind, a dry wind, eddying and twisting, blew the sand up into little rills. A faint odor came to them, a bitter smell of heat sand carried by the wind. Eric pointed. Look, the city. There it is. They stared, still breathing deeply from the race through the trees. The city was close, closer than they'd ever seen it before. Never had they gotten so close to it in times past. Terrans were never allowed near the great Martian cities, the centers of Martian life. Even in ordinary times, when there was no threat of approaching war, the Martians shrewdly kept all Terrans away from their citadels, partly from fear, partly from a deep innate sense of hostility toward the white-skinned visitors whose commercial ventures had earned them the respect and dislike of the whole system. How does it look to you? Eric said. The city was huge, much larger than they had imagined from the drawings and models that they'd studied so carefully back in New York in the War Ministry office. Huge it was, huge and stark. Black towers rising up against the sky, incredibly thin columns of ancient metal, columns that had stood wind and sun for centuries. Around the city was a wall of stone, redstone, immense bricks that had been lugged there and fitted into place by slaves of the early Martian dynasties under the whiplash of the first great kings of Mars. An ancient, sun-baked city, a city set in the middle of a wasted plain, beyond groves of dead trees, a city seldom seen by Terrans, but a city studied on maps and charts in every war office on Terra. A city that contained, for all its ancient stone and archaic towers, the ruling group of Almars, the Council of Senior Lighters, black-clad men who governed and ruled with an iron hand. The senior leaders, twelve fanatic and devoted men, black priests, 
but priests with flashing rods of fire, lie detectors, rocket ships, intraspace cannon, and many more things the Terran Senate could only conjecture about. Senior lighters and their subordinate province lighters, Eric and the two behind him, suppressed a shudder. We've got to be careful, Eric said again. We'll be passing among them soon. They guess who we are or what we're here for. He snapped open the case he carried, glancing inside for a second. Then he closed it again, grasping the handle firmly. Let's go, he said. He stood up slowly. You two come up beside me. I want to make sure you look the way you should. Mara and Jan stepped quickly ahead. Eric studied them critically as the three of them walked slowly down the slope into the plain, toward the towering black spires of the city. Jan, Eric said, take hold of her hand. Remember, you're going to marry her. She's your bride, and Martian peasants think a lot of their brides. Jan was dressed in the short trousers and coat of a Martian farmer, a knotted rope tied around his waist a hat on his head to keep off the sun. His skin was dark, colored by dye, until it was almost bronze. You look fine, Eric said to him. He glanced at Mara. Her black hair was tied in a knot, looped through a hollowed-out uke bone. Her face was dark, too, dark and lined with colored ceremonial pigment, green and orange stripes across her cheeks. Earrings were strung through her ears, her feet were tiny slippers of parahide, laced around her ankles. She wore long, translucent Martian trousers with a bright sash tied around her waist. Between her small breasts, a chain of stone beads rested. Good luck charms for the coming marriage. All right, Merrick said. He himself wore the flowing gray robe of a Martian priest. Dirty robes that were supposed to remain on him all his life be buried around him when he died. I think we'll get past the guards. There should be heavy morning traffic on the road. They walked on, the hard sand crunching under their feet. Against the horizon, they could see specks moving, other persons going toward the city, farmers and peasants and merchants bringing their crops and goods to market. See the cart, Mara exclaimed. They were nearing a narrow road, two ruts worn in the sand. A Martian, Hufa, was pulling the cart, its great sides wet with perspiration, its tongue hanging out. The cart was piled high with bales of cloth, roughly country cloth, hand-dipped. A bent farmer urged the Hufa on. And there, she pointed, smiling. A group of merchants riding small animals were moving along behind the cart. Martians in long robes, their face hidden by sand masks. On each animal was a pack, carefully tied on with rope. And beyond the merchants, plodding dully along, were peasants and farmers in an endless procession, some riding carts or animals, but mostly on foot. Mara and Jan and Eric joined the line of people melting in behind with merchants. No one noticed them, no one looked up or gave any sign. The march continued as before. Neither Jan nor Mara said anything to each other. They walked a little behind Eric, who paced with a certain dignity, a certain bearing becoming his position, 
Once he slowed down, pointing up at the sky. Look, he murmured in the Martian hill dialect. See that? Two black dots circled lazily. Martian patrol craft, the military, on the outlook for any sign of unusual activity. War was almost ready to break out with terror. Any day, almost any moment. We'll be just in time, Eric said. Tomorrow will be too late. The last ship will have left Mars. I hope nothing stops us, Mira said. I want to get back home when we're through. Half an hour passed. They neared the city, the wall, growing as they walked, rising higher and higher until it seemed to blot out the sky itself. A vast wall, a wall of eternal stone that had felt the wind and sun for centuries. A group of Martian soldiers were standing at the entrance, a single passage gate hewn into the rock, leading to the city. As each person went through, the soldiers examined him, poking his garments, Looking into his load, Eric tensed. The line had slowed almost to a halt. We are turned soon, he murmured. Be prepared. Let's hope no leaders come around, Jen said. The soldiers aren't so bad. Mara was staring up at the wall and the towers beyond. Under their feet, the ground trembled, vibrating and shaking. She could see tongues of flame rising from the towers and from the deep underground factories and forges of the city. The air was thick and dense with particles of soot. Mara rubbed her mouth, coughing. Here they come, Eric said softly. The merchants had been examined and allowed to pass through the dark gate, the entrance through the wall into the city. They and their silent animals had already disappeared inside. The leader of the group of soldiers was beckoning impatiently to Eric, waving him on. Come along, he said. Hurry up there, old man. Eric advanced slowly, his arms wrapped around his body, looking down at the ground. Who are you and what's your business here? The soldier barked. His hands on his hips, his gun hanging idly at his waist. Most of the soldiers were lounging lazily, leaning against the wall, some even squatting in the shade. Flies crawled under the face of one who had fallen asleep, his gun on the ground beside him. My business, Eric murmured. I'm a village priest. Why do you want to enter the city? I must bring these two people before the magistrate to marry them. He indicated Mary and Jan, standing a little behind him. This is the law the leaders have made. The soldier laughed. He circled around Eric. You have in that bag you carry. Laundry, we stay the night. What village are you from? Kranos. Kranos? Soldier looked to a companion. Ever heard of Kranos? Backward pigsty. I saw it once on a hunting trip. The leader of the soldiers nodded to Jan and Mara. Two of them advanced, their hands clasped, standing close together. One of the soldiers put his hand on Mara's bare shoulder, turning her around. Nice little wife you're getting, he said. Good and firm looking. He winked, grinning lewdly. Jan glanced at him in sullen resentment. The soldiers guffawed. All right, the leader said to Eric. You people can pass. Eric took a small purse from his robes and gave the soldier a coin. Then the three of them went into the dark tunnel, 
that was the entrance, passing through the wall of stone into the city beyond. They were within the city. Now, Eric whispered, hurry. Around them, the city roared and cracked, the sound of a thousand vents and machines, shaking the stones under their feet. Eric led Mara and Jan into a corner by a row of brick warehouses. People were everywhere, hurrying back and forth, shouting above the din, merchants, peddlers, soldiers, street women. Eric bent down and opened the case he carried. From the case, he quickly took three small coils of fine metal. Intricate meshed wires and veins worked together into a small cone. Jan took one and Mero took one. Eric put the remaining cone into his robe and snapped the case shut again. Now remember, the coils must be buried in such a way that the line runs through the center of the city. We must trisect the main section, where the largest concentration of buildings is. Remember the maps. Watch the alleys and streets carefully. Talk to no one if you can help it. Each of you has enough Martian money to buy your way out of trouble. Watch especially for cut purses. And for heaven's sakes, don't get lost. Eric broke off. Two black-clad ladies were coming along the inside of the wall, strolling together with their hands behind their backs. They noticed the three who stood in the corner by the warehouses and stopped. Go, Eric muttered. Be back here at sundown. He smiled grimly. Or never come back. Each went off a different way, walking quickly without looking back. The lighters watched them go. The little bride was quite lovely, they said. These hill people have the stamp of nobility in their blood. From the old times. Very lucky young peasant to possess her, the other said. They went on. Eric looked after them, still smiling a little. Then he joined the surging mass of people that milled eternally through the streets of the city. At dusk, they met outside the gate. The sun was soon to set and the air had turned thin and frigid. It cut through their clothing like knives. Mara huddled against Jan, trembling and rubbing her bare arms. Well, Eric said, did you both succeed? Around them, peasants and merchants were pouring from the city, leaving the city to return to their farms and villages, starting the long trip back across the plain toward the hills beyond. None of them noticed the shivering girl and the young man and the old priest, "'Standing by the wall. "'Mine's in place,' Jan said. "'On the other side of the city, on the extreme edge. "'Buried by a well. "'Mine's in the industrial section,' Mira whispered, "'her teeth chattering. "'Jan, give me something to put over me. I'm freezing.' "'Good,' Eric said. "'And the three coils should trisect dead center "'if the models were correct.' "'He looked at the darkening sky. "'Already stars were beginning to show.' Two dots, the evening patrol, moved slowly toward the horizon. Let's hurry, it won't be long. They joined the line of Martians moving along the road away from the city. Behind them, the city was losing itself in the somber tones of night, its black spires disappearing into darkness. They walked silently with the country people until the flat ridge of dead trees became visible on the horizon. Then they left the road and turned off walking toward the trees. Almost time, Eric said. He increased his pace, looking back at Chan and Nara impatiently. Come on. They hurried, making their way through the twilight, 
stumbling over rocks and dead branches up the side of the ridge. At the top, Eric halted, standing with his hands on his hips, looking back. See, he murmured, the city. The last time we'll ever see it this way. Can I sit down? Mara set my feet over me. Jan pulled at Eric's sleeve. Hurry, Eric, not much time left. He laughed nervously. If everything goes right, we'll be able to look at it forever. Not like this, Eric murmured. He squatted down, snapping his case open. He took some tubes and wiring out and assembled them together on the ground at the peak of the ridge. A small pyramid of wire and plastic grew, shaped by his expert hands. At last, he grunted, standing up. All right. It's pointed directly at the city. Mara asked anxiously, looking down at the pyramid. Eric nodded. Yes, it's placed according. He stopped, suddenly stiffening. Get back. It's time. Hurry. Jan ran down the far side of the slope, away from the city, pulling Mara with him. Eric came quickly after, still looking back at the distant spires, almost lost in the night sky. Down. Jan sprawled out, Mara beside him, trembling body pressed against his. Eric settled down into the sand and dead branches, still trying to see. I want to see it, he murmured. A miracle. I want to see. A flash, a blinding burst of violet light lit up the sky. Eric clasped his hands over his eyes. The flash whitened, growing larger, expanding. Suddenly there was a roar, and a furious hot wind rushed past him, throwing him on his face in the sand. The hot, dry wind licked and seared at them, crackling the bits of branches into flame. Mara and Jan shut their eyes pressed tightly together. God, Eric muttered. The storm passed. They opened their eyes slowly. The sky was still alive with fire. A drifting cloud of sparks that was beginning to dissipate with the night wind. Eric stood up unsteadily, helping Janet Mara to their feet. The three of them stood, staring silently across the dark waste. The black plain, none of them speaking. The city was gone. At last, Eric turned away. That part's done, he said. Now the rest. Give me a hand, Jan. There'll be a thousand patrol ships around here in a minute. See one already, Mara said, pointing up. A spot winked in the sky, a rapidly moving spot. They're coming, Eric. There was a throb of chill fear in her voice. I know. Eric and Jan squatted on the ground around a pyramid of tubes and plastic, pulling the pyramid apart. The pyramid was fused, fused together like molten glass. Eric tore the pieces away with trembling fingers. From the remains of the pyramid, he pulled something forth, something he held up high, trying to make it out in the darkness. Jan and Mara came close to see, both staring up intently, almost without breathing. There it is, Eric said. There. In his hand was a globe, a small transparent globe of glass. Within the glass, something moved, something minute and fragile. Spires almost too small to be seen. Microscopic. Complex web swimming within the hollow glass tube. A web of spires. A city. Eric put the globe in the case and snapped it shut. Let's go, he said. They began to lope through the, into the trees, 
back the way they'd come before. We'll change in the car, he said as they ran. I think we should keep these clothes on until we're actually inside the car. We still might encounter someone. I'll be glad to get my own clothing on again, Jan said. I feel funny in these little pants. How do you think I feel? Lara gasped. I'm freezing in this. What there is of it. All young Martian brides dress that way, Eric said. He clutched the case tightly as they ran. I think it looks fine. Thank you, Mara said. But it is cold. What do you suppose they'll think, Jan asked. They'll assume the city was destroyed, won't they? That's certain. Yes, Eric said. They'll be sure it was blown up. We can count on that. And it'll be damn important to us that they think so. The car should be around here someplace, Mara said, slowing down. No, further on, Eric said. Past that little hill over there, in the ravine by the trees. It's so hard to see where we are. Shall I light something? Jan said. No, they... there may be patrols around here. He halted abruptly. Jan and Mara stopped beside him. What? Mara began. A light glimmered. Something stirred in the darkness. There was a sound. Quick! Eric rasped. He dropped, throwing the case far away from him, into the bushes. He straightened up tensely. A figure loomed up, moving through the darkness. Behind it came more figures. Men, soldiers in uniform. The light flashed up brightly, behinding them. Eric closed his eyes. The light left him, touching Mara and Jan, standing silently together, clasping hands. Then it flicked down to the ground and around in a circle. A lighter stepped forward, a tall figure in black, with his soldiers close behind him, their guns ready. You three, the leader said. Who are you? Don't move. Stand where you are. He came up to Eric, peering at him intently, his hard Martian face without expression. He went all around Eric, examining his robes, his sleeves. Please, Eric began in a quavering voice, but the lighter cut him off. I'll do the talking. Who are you three? What are you doing here? Speak up. We're going back to our village, Eric muttered, staring down, his hands folded. We were in the city and now we're going home. One of the soldiers spoke into a mouthpiece. He clicked it off and put it away. Come with me, the leader said. We're taking you in. Hurry along. In? Back to the city? One of the soldiers laughed. The city is gone, he said. All that's left of it you can put into the palm of your hand. But what happened? Mary said. No one knows. Come on, hurry it up. There was a sound. The soldier came quickly out of the darkness. A senior leader, he said, coming this way. He disappeared again. A senior leader. The soldier stood waiting, standing at a respectful attention. A moment later, the senior leader stepped into the light, a black-clad old man, his ancient face thin and hard, like a bird's eyes bright and alert. He looked from Eric to Jan. Who are these people, he demanded. Villagers going back home. No, they're not. They don't stand like villagers. Villagers slump. Diet. Poor food. These people are not villagers. I myself came from the hills, and they know. He stepped close to Eric, looking keenly into his face. Who are you? 
Look at his chin. He never shaves with a sharpened stone. Something's wrong here. In his hand, a rod of pale fire flashed. The city is gone, and with it at least half the leader council. It's very strange. A flash, then heat, and a wind. But it was not fission. I'm puzzled. All at once, the city has vanished. Nothing is left but a depression in the sand. We'll take them in, the other leader said. Soldiers, surround them. Make certain that... Run, Eric cried. He struck out, knocking the rod from the senior leader's hand. They were all running, soldiers shouting, flashing their lights, stumbling against each other in the darkness. Eric dropped to his knees, groping frantically in the bushes. His fingers closed over the handle of the case, and he leapt up. In turn, he shouted to Mara and Jan, Hurry! Run to the car! Run! He set off, down the slope, stumbling through the darkness. He could hear soldiers behind him, soldiers running and falling. A body collided against him, and he struck out. Someplace behind him, there was a hiss, and a section of the slope went up in flames. The leader's rod. Eric! Mara cried from the darkness. He ran toward her. Suddenly, he slipped, falling on a stone. Confusion and firing. The sound of excited voices. Eric, is that you? Jan caught hold of him, helping him up. The car, it's over there. Where's Mara? Here, Mara's voice came. Over here, by the car. A light flashed. A tree went up in a puff of fire. Eric felt the singe of the heat against his face. He and Jan made their way toward the girl. Eric's hand caught his in the darkness. Now the car, Eric said. If they haven't gotten to it. He slid down the slope into the ravine, fumbling in the darkness, reaching and holding onto the handle of the case. Reaching. Reaching. He touched something cold and smooth. Metal. A metal door handle. Relief flooded through him. I've found him. Jan, get inside. Mara, come on. He pushed Jan past him into the car. Mara slipped in after Jan, her small, agile body crowding in beside him. Stop! A voice shouted from above. There's no use hiding in that ravine. We'll get you. Come up and... The sound of voices was drowned out by the roar of the car's motor. A moment later, they shot into the darkness, the car rising into the air. Treetops broke and cracked under them as Eric turned the car from side to side, avoiding the groping shafts of pale light from below. The last furious thrust from the two lighters and their soldiers, and they were away, above the trees, high in the air, gaining speed each moment, leaving the knot of Martians far behind. Toward Mossport, Jan said to Eric, right? Eric nodded, yes. We'll land outside the field in the hills. We can change back into our regular clothing there, our commercial clothing. Damn it, we'll be lucky if we can get there in time for the ship. The last ship, Mara whispered, her chest rising and falling. What if we don't get there in time? Eric looked down at the leather case in his lap. We'll have to get there, he murmured. We must. For a long time there was silence. Thatcher stared at Erickson, the older man, who was leaning back in his chair, sipping a little of his drink. Mara and Jan were silent. So you didn't destroy the city, Thatcher said. You didn't destroy it all? You shrank it down and 
put it in a glass globe in a paperweight. And now you're salesman again, with a case, a sample case, of office supplies. Erickson smiled. He opened the briefcase, and reaching into it, he brought out the glass globe paperweight. He held it up, looking into it. Yes, we stole the city from the Martians. That's how we got by the lie detector. It was true that we knew nothing about a destroyed city. But why, Thatcher said, why steal a city? Why not merely bomb it? Ransom, Mary said fervently, gazing into the globe, her dark eyes bright. Their biggest city, half of their council, in Eric's hand. Mars will have to do what Terra asks, Erickson said. Now Terra will be able to make her commercial demands felt. Maybe there won't even be a war. Perhaps Terra will get her way without fighting. Still smiling, he put the globe back into the briefcase and locked it. Quite a story, Thatcher said. An amazing process, reduction of size. A whole city reduced to microscopic dimensions. Amazing. No wonder you were able to escape. Such daring as that, no one could hope to stop you. He looked down at the briefcase on the floor. Underneath them, the jets murmured and vibrated evenly as the ship moved through space toward distant Terra. Still have quite a ways to go, Jan said. You've heard our story, Thatcher. Why not tell us yours? What sort of lion are you in? What's your business? Yes, Mary said. What do you do? What do I do, Thatcher said. Well, if you like, I'll show you. He reached into his coat and brought out something. Something that flashed and glinted, something slender. A rod of pale fire. The three stared at it. Sickened shock settled over them slowly. Thatcher held the rod loosely, calmly, pointing it at Erickson. We knew you three were on this ship, he said. There was no doubt of that. But we didn't know what had become of the city. My theory was that the city had not been destroyed at all, that something else had happened to it. Council instruments measured a sudden loss of mass in that area, a decrease equal to the mass of the city. Somehow the city had been spirited away, not destroyed, but I couldn't convince the other council leaders of it. I had to follow you alone. Thatcher turned a little, nodding to the man sitting at the bar. The men rose at once, coming toward a table. Very interesting process you have. Mars will benefit a great deal from it. Perhaps it'll even turn the tide in our favor. When we return to Mossport, I wish to begin work on it at once. And now, if you will, please pass me the briefcase. I hope you enjoyed The Crystal Crypt by Philip K. Dick as performed by yours truly. While we would normally point you toward the works of the authors we feature on the program, it would be difficult to list exactly where to find all the prolific works of the late Philip K. Dick, while mainly famous for his paranoia-driven sci-fi fare, that has been turned into such films as A Scanner Darkly, Total Recall and Blade Runner, and Minority Report, he also was no stranger to the weird and the unusual. 
Should you endeavor to find more, the internet and your local or favorite online bookstore will be sure to have him listed in one place or another. Yes, a little ingenuity can beat the most complicated security, but the end, if you don't know to keep your mouth shut about your capers, it may not end well for you. Speaking of mouths, we turn to our next story, in which a mouth and a little dialogue is all a creature has going for it, and a few very hungry crew tries to decide what to do with it. Without further ado, I present to you Beyond Lies the Wub. The slovenly wub might as well have said, Many men talk like philosophers and live like fools. They'd almost finished with the loading. Outside stood the optus. His arms folded, his face sunken in gloom. Captain Franco walked leisurely down the gangplank, grinning. What's the matter, he said. You're getting paid for all this. The optus said nothing. He turned away, collecting his robes. The captain put his boot on the hem of the robe. Just a minute. Don't go off. I'm not finished. Oh. The optus turned with dignity. I'm going back to the village. He looked toward the animals and birds being driven up the gangplank into the spaceship. I must organize new hunts. Franco lit a cigarette. Why not? You people can go out into the belt and track it all down again. But we, when we run out halfway between Mars and Earth... The optus went off wordless. Franco joined the first mate at the bottom of the gangplank. How's it coming, he said. He looked at his watch. We got a good bargain here. The mate glanced at him sourly. How do you explain that? What's the matter with you? We need it more than they do. I'll see you later, Captain. The mate threaded his way up the plank between the long-legged Martian go-birds into the ship. Franco watched him disappear. He was just starting up after him, up the plank toward the port, when he saw it. My God! He stood staring, his hands on his hips. Peterson was walking along the path, his face red, leading it by a string. I'm sorry, Captain, he said, tugging at the string. Franco walked toward him. What is it? The wub stood, sagging its great body, settling slowly. It was sitting down, its eyes half shut. A few flies buzzed about its flank and it switched its tail. It sat. There was silence. It's a wub, Peterson said. I got it from a native for 50 cents. He said it was a very unusual animal, very respected. This? Franco poked the great sloping side of the wub. It's a pig. A huge, dirty pig. Yes, sir, it's pig. The natives call it a wub. A huge pig. It must weigh 400 pounds. Franco grabbed a tuft of the rough hair. The wub gasped. Its eyes opened, small and moist. Then its great mouth twitched. A tear rolled down the wub's cheek and splashed on the floor. Maybe it's good to eat, Peterson said nervously. We'll soon find out, Franco said. 
The Wub survived the takeoff, sound asleep in the hold of the ship. When they were out in space and everything was running smoothly, Captain Franco bade his men fetch the Wub upstairs so that he might perceive what manner of beast it was. The Wub grunted and wheezed, squeezing its way up the passageway. Come on, Jones grated, pulling at the rope. The Wub twisted, rubbing its skin off on the smooth chrome walls. Burst into the anteroom, tumbling down in a heap. The men leaped up. Good Lord, French said. What is it? Peterson says it's a Wub, Jones said. It belongs to him. He kicked at the Wub. The Wub stood up unsteadily, panting. What's the matter with it? French came over. Is it going to be sick? They watched. The Wub rolled its eyes mournfully. It gazed around at the men. I think it's thirsty, Peterson said. He went to get some water. French shook his head. No wonder we had so much trouble taking off. I had to reset all my ballast calculations. Peterson came back with the water. The Wub began to lap gratefully, splashing the men. Captain Franco appeared at the door. Let's have a look at it. He advanced, squinting critically. You got this for fifty cents. Yes, sir, Peterson said. It eats almost anything. I fed it on grain and it liked that. And then potatoes, and mash, and scraps from the table, and milk. It seemed to enjoy eating. After it eats, it lies down and goes to sleep. I see, Captain Franco said. Now, as to its taste, that's the real question. I doubt if there's much point in it fattening it up anymore. It seems fat enough to me already. Where is the cook? I want him here. I want to find out. The wub stopped lapping and looked up at the captain. Really, captain, the wub said. I suggest we talk of other matters. The room was silent. What was that? Franco said. Just now. The wub, sir, Peterson said. It spoke. They all looked at the wub. What did it say? What did it say? It suggested we talk about other things. Franco walked toward the wub, went all around it, examining it from every side. Then he came back over and stood with the men. I wonder if there's a native inside of it, he said thoughtfully. Maybe we should open it up and have a look. Oh, goodness, the wub cried. Is that all you people can think of, killing and cutting? Franco clenched his fists. Come out of there, whoever you are. Come out. Nothing stirred. The men stood together, their faces blank, staring at the wub. The wub swished its tail. It belched suddenly. I beg your pardon, the wub said. I don't think there's anyone in there, Jones said in a low voice. They all looked at each other. The cook came in. You wanted me, Captain, he said. What's this thing? This is a wub, Franco said. It's to be eaten. Will you measure it and figure out? I think we should have a talk, the wub said. I'd like to discuss this with you, Captain, if I might. I can see that you and I do not agree on some basic issues. The captain took a long time to answer. The wub waited good-naturedly, licking the water from its jowls. Come into my office. The captain said at last. He turned and walked out of the room. The wub rose and padded after him. 
The man watched it go out. They heard it climbing the stairs. I wonder what the outcome will be. The cook said, Well, I'll be in the kitchen. Let me know as soon as you hear. Sure, Joan said. Sure. The wub eased itself down in the corner with a sigh. You must have forgiven me, he had said. I'm afraid I'm addicted to various forms of relaxation. When one is as large as I... The captain nodded impatiently. He sat down at his desk and folded his hands. All right, he said. Let's get started. You're a wub, is that correct? The wub shrugged. I suppose so. That's what they call us. The natives, I mean. We have our own term. And you speak English. You've been in contact with Earthmen before? No. Then how do you do it? Speak English? Am I speaking English? I'm not conscious of speaking anything in particular. I examine your mind. My mind? I study the contents, especially the semantic warehouse, as I refer to it. I see, the captain said. Telepathy, of course. We're a very old race, the wub said. Very old and very ponderous. It's difficult for us to move around. You can appreciate that anything so slow and heavy well, that would be at the mercy of more agile forms of life. There's no use in our relying on physical defenses. How could we win? Too heavy to run, too soft to fight, too good-natured to hunt for, and game. How do you live? Plants, vegetables. We can eat almost anything. We're very Catholic. Tolerant, eclectic, Catholic. We live and let live. That's how we've gotten along. The wub eyed the captain. That's why I so violently objected to this business about having me boiled. I could see the image in your mind. Most of me in the frozen food locker, some of me in the kettle, a bit for your pet cat. So you read minds, the captain said. How interesting. Anything else? I mean, what else can you do along those lines? A few odds and ends, the wub said absently, staring around the room. Nice apartment you have here, Captain. Keep it quite neat. Respect life forms that are tidy. Some Martian birds are quite tidy. They throw things out of their nest and sweep them. Indeed, the Captain nodded. But to get back to the problem... Quite so. You spoke of dining on me. The taste, I am told, is good. A little fatty, but tender. But how can any lasting contact be established between your people and mine if you resort to such barbaric attitudes? Eat me? Rather, you should discuss questions with me, you know, philosophically, the arts. The captain stood up. Philosophy? It might interest you to know that we will be hard put to find something to eat for the next month. An unfortunate spoilage. I know, the wub nodded. But wouldn't it be more in accord with your principles of democracy if we all drew straws and something along those lines? After all, democracy is to protect the minority from just such infringements. Now, if each of us casts one vote... The captain walked to the door. Nuts to you, he said. He opened the door. He opened his mouth. He stood frozen, his mouth wide, his eyes staring, his fingers still on the knob. The wub watched him. Presently, it padded out of the room, 
Edging past the captain, it went down the hall deep in meditation. The room was quiet. So you see, the web said, we have a common myth. Your mind contains many familiar myth symbols. Ishtar, Odysseus. Peterson sat silently, staring at the floor. He shifted in his chair. Go on, he said. Please, go on. I find in your Odysseus a figure common to the mythology of most self-conscious races. As I interpret it, Odysseus wanders as an individual, aware of himself as such. This is the idea of separation, of separation from family and country, the process of individuation. Odysseus returns to his home. Peterson looked out the port window at the stars, endless stars, burning intently in the empty universe. Finally, he goes home, as must all creatures. The moment of separation is a temporary period, a brief journey of the soul. It begins, it ends. The wanderer returns to land and race. The door opened. The wub stopped, turning its great head. Captain Franco came into the room, the men behind him. They hesitated at the door. Are you all right? French said. Do you mean me? Peterson said. Surprised? Why me? Franco lowered his gun. Come over here, he said to Peterson. Get up and come here. There was silence. Go ahead, the wub said. It doesn't matter. Peterson stood up. What for? It's an order. Peterson walked to the door. French caught his arm. What's going on? Peterson wrenched loose. What's the matter with you? Captain Franco moved toward the wub. The wub looked up from where it lay in the corner, pressed against the wall. It is interesting, the wub said, that you're obsessed with the idea of eating me. I wonder why. Get up, Franco said. If you wish. The wub rose, grunting. Be patient, it's difficult for me. It stood, gasping its tongue, lolling foolishly. Shoot it now, French said. For God's sake, Peterson exclaimed. Jones turned to him quickly, his eyes gray with fear. You didn't see him, like a statue standing there, his mouth open. If we hadn't come down, he'd still be there. Who? The captain? Peterson stared around. He's all right now. They looked at the wub standing in the middle of the room, its great chest rising and falling. Come on, Franco said. Out of the way. The man pulled aside the door. You are quite afraid, aren't you? The wub said. Have I done anything to you? I am against the idea of hurting. All I've done is try to protect myself. Do you expect me to rush eagerly to my death? I'm a sensible being like yourselves. I was curious to see your ship learn about you. I suggested to the native. The gun jerked. See, Franco said. I thought so. The wub settled down, panting. It put its paw out, pulling its tail around it. It's very warm, the wub said. I understand that we're close to the jets. Atomic power. Done many wonderful things with it, technically. Apparently, your scientific hierarchy is not equipped to solve moral, ethical. Franco turned to the men crowding behind him, wide-eyed and silent. I'll do it. You can watch. French nodded. 
Try to hit the brain. It's no good for eating. Don't hit the chest. If the ribcage chatters, we'll have to pick bones out. Listen, Peterson said, licking his lips. Has it done anything? What harm has it done? I'm asking you. Anyhow, it's still mine. You have no right to shoot it. It doesn't belong to you. Franco raised his gun. I'm going out, Jones said, his face white and sick. I don't want to see it. Me too, French said. The men straggled out, murmuring. Peterson lingered at the door. He was talking to me about myths, he said. It wouldn't hurt anyone. He went outside. Franco walked toward the wub. The wub looked up slowly. It swallowed. A very foolish thing, it said. I'm sorry that you want to do it. There was a parable that your savior related. It stopped staring at the gun. Can you look me in the eye and do it? The wub said. Can you do that? The captain gazed down. I can look you in the eye, he said. Back on the farm we had hogs. Dirty razorback hogs. I can do it. Staring down at the wub into the glimming moist eyes, he pressed the trigger. The taste was excellent. They sat glumly around the table, some of them hardly eating at all. The only one who seemed to be enjoying himself was Captain Franco. More, he said, looking around. More and some wine, perhaps. Eh, not me, French said. I think I'll go back to the chart room. Me too, Jones stood up, pushing his chair back. I'll see you later. The captain watched them go. Some of the others excused themselves. What do you suppose the matter is, the captain said. He turned to Peterson. Peterson sat staring down at his plate, at the potatoes, the green peas, and the thick slab of tender, warm meat. He opened his mouth. No sound came. The captain put his hand on Peterson's shoulder. It's only organic matter now, he said. Life essence is gone. He ate, spooning up the gravy with some bread. I myself love to eat. It's one of the greatest things that a living creature can enjoy. Eating, resting, meditation, discussing things. Peterson nodded. Two more men got up and went out. Captain drank some water and sighed. Well, he said, I must say that this was a very enjoyable all the reports I had heard were quite true. The taste of wub, very fine. But I was prevented from enjoying this pleasure in past times. He dabbed at his lips with his napkin and leaned back in his chair. Edison stared dejectedly at the table. The captain watched him intently. He leaned over. Come on, he said. Cheer up. Let's discuss things. He smiled. As I was saying before, I was interrupted the role of Odysseus in the myths. Peterson jerked up, staring. To go on, the captain said, Odysseus, as I understand it, I hope you enjoyed Beyond Lies the Wub by Philip K. Dick, as performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed what you've heard today, I'd like to remind you one last time that tonight's featured author's works can be found wherever fine books are sold. You may think he's gone, but that's just what he's expecting you to believe. Thanks again for your support of this program and of tonight's featured author. 
A reminder, if you decide to give tonight's talented authors stories to read, please consider leaving them a quality review and a kind word, or a thoughtful public comment, and even an upvote. Be sure to let them know you heard about them here on this program and that me, Otis Jarry, sent you. It means more to me than you can imagine. Thanks again for your support of this show and of tonight's featured author. Now, before we go, I'd also like to take a moment to thank you personally for joining me for this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs. Or become a patron for as little as five bucks a month get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases, and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Jiry channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. Just search for Otis Jiry. Until next week, stay spooky. Get some sleep if you can. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted, and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, The Otis Jiry Channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name, and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. 
You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs>